Hello, and welcome back to the Observer Station. This week's episode will be a bunch of short clips and audio editing from the latest AP and Council meeting. It has to deal with observer safety, as that was one of the more interesting topics to myself, and those are the kind of topics I go over in this podcast. If you have any special topics you want to have covered from the council meeting, just hit me up, let me know. Uh, Even if you didn't listen to it yourself, I'll go through and edit it down into something manageable to listen to, not the, you know, eight hours that each council meeting typically takes each day Um, between that and the AP meeting there's quite a lot to listen to and I know it's not for everyone to go through and listen to it all so I'm willing to go through and cut it up and make it into better bite-sized pieces for people to listen to adding my own commentary as well so that you know everybody's opinions especially my own get heard if I miss anything I have any bad takes let me know but I think I'm pretty fair and pretty honest about these things if you think otherwise, let me know. And it's going to go jump straight into Jackie giving her presentation on observer safety in Alaska. This is Alaska specific, so if you're listening in to find out what's going on in the West Coast, you are listening to the wrong place. Anyways, listen in and learn a lot. Interactions and behaviors towards a fisheries observer, this is among our highest priorities. In 2021, there were no reports of any type of assault or assault of behavior towards an observer. And when I say assault, I don't mean necessarily a physical assault. What we're talking about is behavior towards an observer that puts them in fear of imminent harm. So it could be a verbal threat. It could be someone raising their fist or just general aggressive behavior towards that observer that makes them fearful of of harm. In 2022, however, we did have an increased rate, and it was a rate of 0.33 per assignment on the catcher, processor, and non-pelagic prowl in the Gulf of Alaska. And the other one that we wanted to note was 0.02 per assignment on the catcher, processor, amendment 80, non-pelagic prowl in the Bering Sea. For sexual harassment for the catcher processor amendment 80 fleet operating in the catcher or in the Bering Sea Aleutian Islands, and then um, the motherships in the Bering Sea AFA guys, pretty much our at sea processing fleet, we had a rate of 0.07 per assignment. For the catcher processors and motherships of Pelagic Trawl CDQ fishery, which is going to be some similar boat to the above, um, we had a rate of 0.05 per assignment. I also want to highlight that for these sexual harassment incidences, it involved unwelcome advanced towards the observer and it was repeated attempts. It wasn't just one single isolated incident, it happened repeatedly. So to us, this becomes an even bigger issue because if it's one attempt where it stops after someone requests it to stop, then it's not as egregious as repeated attempts after someone's been put on notice. And I, some of you may have received this, but we had recently received this notice that advises that owners and operators may be charged jointly and severally liable for incidences involving sexual assault and sexual harassment of observers that occur on a vessel. Another thing that we wanted to note is that sexual harassment per assignment did decline from 2021 to 2022 by 33%, but it's also important to note that when we're talking about these rates of sexual harassment, it's what's actually reported to us, not what we actually see out in the field or what observers are experiencing out in the field. Continuing on with the interpersonal types of potential violations, when we're looking at the intimidation, coercion, hostile work environment, we wanted to highlight the rates that are occurring at our shoreside processing facilities. There was a rate of 1.03 occurrences per assignment for the GOA open access at the shoreside processors, and then 0.84 occurrences per assignment at the Bering Sea Aleutian Island plants. We have a question for you. Thank you so far. We have a question for you from Greta. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, they, these are a lot of numbers that I thought great, but they don't mean much to me. How is that relative to a business on shore or a shore-based processor or Walmart? I, I don't know. I mean, how, is, is this really high or really low? Or? Good question overall asked here. Uh, not really relevant. Uh, Jackie is going to give a really good answer to it, and I, I'll make more comments after, after the next rebuttal. But it, a rate of 0.33 is pretty high, even if you know it comes from a low number of vessels. Imagine every time you walk into a mall, you you have the chance of walking into a store where there's a one in three chance that someone will just punch you straight in the face. Yeah. There's a lot of buildings in the mall. There's a lot of different businesses. Overall, the odds of it happening are pretty low, but the odds of you walking into or getting put into a business where someone has a one in three chance to just sock you in the face, that that seems pretty high. And uh, it's, it's important to keep these numbers relevant and not dismiss them because they come from a low population. So, on to it. 
through the chair, a single incident of any type of unwanted behavior is one too many, especially for fishery observers. These observers are deploying up to Alaska. They're collecting information for the government so we can effectively manage the fisheries. And they're just often in an isolated environment. They're far from their family, from their friends, away from people who could be helping them out. When you're working at home, at a business, at a Walmart, things like that, at the end of the day, you can go home. Fishery observers are out there for up to 90 days at a time, could be even longer if their contract ends up being extended. So just that added burden on them is going to add some sort of like stressors to their whole experience. Go ahead, Greta. Yeah, I understand. I totally agree with everything you said there, but I just, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, what, what is the rest of the world dealing with relative to this? Is this, I mean, there's always going to be a bad scene and yeah, one is too many, but fact of life, it happens. Is it higher or lower than it is on land? We don't have those, we don't have those numbers in um, this particular report. That is something that we could try to include in future reports. Um, there is proceedings from the International Fishery Observer and Monitoring Conference where they did touch on it. So there are rates available of what other countries might experience in their observer program. Thank you. Do we have any other questions? Rick, go ahead. Yeah, as long as we're taking a little break here. So the um, the numbers there are 1.03 occurrences per assignment. That basically saying every like if you average out our world observers, every single observer is getting some making some statement for this issue. Is that what that means? One per assignment. So what we're looking at is occurrences. Um, so one observer they might be at a plant for 90 days at a time, and then they might have an occurrence happen to them every other day. So then that would be 45 occurrences within that 90 day period. So when you have numbers like that, just because it's not single isolated incidents, it just ends up extrapolating a lot more. All right. So that number seems really high to me. One per assignment. Yes, it, it is really high. I noticed the vessel ones were 0 0.05 or 0.07 on the previous, so 20 times less. Yes, and this is something that um, we've also noted. Um, something I also want to note that we have seen an increase of observer on observer harassment occurring, particularly at the shoreside processing facility. So the numbers that you're looking at, in particular the plant, the Gulf of Alaska and Bering Sea, those do include um, the subject being both observers and plant employees, as opposed to on the catcher processors and the motherships, where the subjects are only um, fishermen. Thank you. Thank you. Chelsea. Thank you through the chair. Um, Jackie, just a follow up to that question. So the last bullet, there's been a 243% increase of occurrences. Um, is that primarily, is that increase primarily driven by observer on observer harassment or do we have that broken out somehow roughly? We, we ended up not breaking it out that way, but that is something that we can do in the future. Okay, thanks. Thank you. No, I think that we're, we're good to continue. I also do want to note that um, the observers are great at thoroughly documenting everything that's happening and the fishing industry is really great about apprising us and letting us know of issues that are happening out there. And we do want to note that there are a lot of frequent attempts to try to resolve some of these issues while the observers are still deployed. In previous years, maybe if we look five years back, a lot of times the observers would wait to report the issues when they were in their debriefing process. Now they are being reported in season. So the statements are still being written, but we're able to start working on it and start to work to resolve the situation while the observers are still deployed. Moving on to safety and duties. These are the type of issues that impact an observer's safety and their ability to conduct their duties. First, we're gonna start with the interference and the sample biasing. For the catcher processor, mothership, um, non-pelagic, Amendment 80 sector, and this is in the Bering Sea, we had 30.2 occurrences per 1,000 deployed days. And then same set of boats, but this is over in CDQ, it was 25.9 occurrences per 1,000 deployed days. And then I do mention here that um, the vessels involved in both categories were the same vessels. And when we looked at in more in depth at some of the issues, some of them included like mechanical biasing of the observer samples. There's this issues down in the factory, equipment gets old. A lot of times the observers were letting somebody know. Um, one of the specific instances where maybe some of the belts where there was two belt segments, um, there was, they were separating it. They were separated out. So the fish was falling between the belts onto the floor, not making it to the observer samples. These issues were identified. And when the boats were in shipyard, they resolved. So when we boarded the vessels this past February, um, a lot of the issues had been resolved. So to us, it was a non-intentional issue. It wasn't something that couldn't be immediately resolved. They had workarounds, and then once they were able to resolve it in the shipyard, they were dealt with. Moving on to protected resources and prohibited species. In the Gulf of Alaska, we had observers report 54 instances involving salmon being inaccessible at the shoreside plants. So this may mean that um, they passed the last point of sorting. They might have noticed that it was there, and then no one ever brought it back to them. Or maybe it was brought back to them later from the factory when they were done with their, their salmon counts and duties. Heather. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Jackie, for the presentation so far. So in that case, if a reporter or a reporter, if an um, observer reports that, how do you investigate that? I mean, is it you're just taking their word for it or how do you investigate that? Like, I know that it's accurate. So, Chair, so what we do is we talk to the observer, try to get details from them, see what they have documented down on them. We'll also determine, okay, are they positively identifying when a salmon is actually a salmon? We'll also perhaps talk to the production manager, whoever's on staff. Um, and then we can also go to a plant watch when they're running fish to see, okay, is this potential violation a possibility? So if we see instances where the fish is running really thick, then more than likely, okay, yes, we could see why someone could miss a salmon. If there's an incident or when we go to an area where the fish are really laid out flat, it's easy for someone to reach out and sort the fish, then you might say, okay, are we sure this is something that happened? Okay, so that was kind of a long clip. First thing, 
Jackie answers that question pretty well. Um, they do bring up that, you know, any instance is too many. That's a great idea. It's great to try to strive for that zero point and dismissing the idea of reaching a zero because there may always be the bad guy out there is silly. You should always strive for success and perfection. If you can get it, awesome. If you can't, well, at least you tried. Um, they bring up briefly a little bit uh, of the observer on observer harassment and the idea that they didn't break down these numbers into what reports were dealing with observers harassing observers and what reports were dealing with observers being harassed by plant and crew. Um, I think she incorrectly said that on vessels, you know, there's not the possibility of observer observer harassment. And that's not true. Uh, there's catcher processors and vessels that have two observers on them. So that that's just an incorrect uh, statement there. There was a little bit brought up here at the end about how do they prove that these things are happening. And a lot of the time, you know, it, it, you're taking it word of mouth just like you do with most crimes. Someone reports something, you investigate it by going through and seeing, okay, well, is this feasible? How likely is this to happen? Is there a lot of occurrences of this happening? And you look into it like that, not, you know, you're not just taking their word for it. There is an investigation that goes on. You talk to vessels, plant, plant personnel. Um, you can look at footage of how they run the fish or what issues. There, there is hard evidence that goes into this. And assuming that someone contacts the observer and says, hey, just snap a photo of this next time you see this issue. So we can get it better documented. Um, a lot of these plants are willing to make these changes so that they are in compliance. And it's silly to just think, oh, well, just because the observer said it, uh, they're going to get in trouble. And it's also silly to make it seem like observers are just out there accusing plants of breaking all these rules when that isn't a case. Like, isn't the case a majority of the time. I'm sure it happens, but not as frequently as some people may like to think. Patty. Oh, Heather, ask a follow-up and then we'll go to Patty. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Um, so the numbers that you have up here, the 54 occurrences, were those all proven to be accurate or you're just saying what was reported? These are the potential violations. These are not um, substantiated. Okay, thanks. Patty and then... Just quick comment on that. That's a weird clarification to want to be made. Their statements, their incidences, um, they're not convictions. Uh, just like any crime, you can be accused uh, accused of it. You can be written up. Uh, no, what do they call that? You can be charged with something, but if you're not convicted of it, then yeah. And it's not because you didn't commit the crime that you weren't convicted or you didn't make do the issue. It's just it either wasn't worth the court's time or there, there's a lot of... Con founding factors. So just because it's not proven guilty doesn't mean it's innocent. Chelsea. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, so, so the Gulf plants, the majority of them have a CCTV, and I'm not aware if they record, but I do know that they have CCTV watching the factories as fish is being processed. Is, was, was that looked at, or will that be looked at during this investigation into this occurrence with the 54 <clears throat> salmon? So the chair, this is a possibility. Um, we wait, whoever is the investigating agent or officer could talk with the plant and ask to look at the video. We do know that sometimes the video isn't retained for, for very long. So if a certain amount of time has lapsed, then the video may no longer be available. This is a question. I'm not sure if I feel like it's a good or bad question. Yes, some of the plants do record and have video. Um, I can't imagine that they want to keep that video long enough for OLE to go through the process of requesting a copy and getting a copy of the data for an instance that may have happened months and months ago, these plants would be required to hold on to this data for quite quite some time, you know, at least three to four months. So I don't know. I, I don't think this is something that would need to be done. Um, if it's something that becomes a reoccurring issue, looking at electronic monitoring for salmon belts and things like that may be easier than asking the plants to use the CCTV that they have. And yeah, that's all I got.
54 occurrences and then also the 20 occurrences when the salmon numbers didn't match. Are you able to say if this was primarily um, partial coverage observers delivering shoreside or is this in the polity ESP by the shoreside observers? To the chair, this is gonna be a combination. So we, we have some of the observers, if the observer is on one of those partial coverage vessels and they go into the plant, then they would have access to be able to do the sampling. But then some of the Gulf of Alaska plants, they do have their own um, EM observers or the observers that are hopping around. So it might be one of them that ended up being the one that reported it. Thank you, if you have a follow up. Yeah, just a clarification. So you don't, you're not sure what the percentage is. Cause I was under the impression that a lot of, for the shoreside EFP observers, a lot of these solutions had been worked around when they come up with better methods for ensuring the observers have access to salmon. So I just wasn't sure because I know with the partial coverage shoreside or vessel observers, that's been a long issue since they're not always returning to that plant um, to correct fish tickets and things like that. Right, so we, we only have it as partial coverage. It's not split out further than that. Paul. I'm sort of connected to what you were talking about earlier with the, the issues with that Amendment 80 vessel that had some mechanical issues. Were you notified of these particular issues in season or are these coming through in statements at the end of the, the debriefing process? To the chair, some of them were self-reported through the vessels. We have um, this template that vessels can use to self-report any potential violations and then they'll, they'll explain what they intend to do to resolve it. Um, and vessels are using it if it is brought to their attention. There are some observers who are bringing it to somebody's attention. So it's, if it is brought to someone's attention, they are reporting it to us in season. There are other observers who um, end up not reporting it until they return from the field because uh, it might be because they're not comfortable reporting it in season or they weren't aware it was a potential violation. I guess I'm just wondering if these these particular issues were able to get sorted out in season or if they were, or if you know that offhand, I mean, it's, there's quite a bit of data here. So it's possible that that's not available. So the ones that I am thinking of off the top of my head where there was a gap in the belt and the fish were falling, what they did in season is they put a basket underneath to collect the fish as it fell down. And then they were able to dump it back onto the belt before the flow scale. So it was in effect going over the flow scale being weighed as required. And um, the observer was able to collect their samples from it. So it was just a potential violation that was resolved. Sorry, right. I, I just mean these specific issues with salmon in the Gulf of Alaska. Oh, those ones off the top of my head, I do not know. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Heather. As someone, someone who has experienced these kind of issues in the GOA, uh, it it's not a huge issue having a level of discrepancy. Typically, it's, it's fixed um, by going through and collaborating with the person at the processing plant who identified the salmon or did their salmon count and i, I don't know that that's all i got on this one there's not a whole lot of comments to be made on this the plants are relatively helpful but sometimes they just it's cheaper for them to take the fine than it is for them to try to fix any salmon issues they need to get fish processed and they need to keep the plant running Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Um, Jackie, I guess I'm a little confused and I can't read what the word is um, in the last bullet. I'm thinking it says increased. So you're reporting an, an increase in numbers, but it's on unsubstantiated claims. But it doesn't say anywhere that these are unsubstantiated. So it's sending the message that there's quite a bit of activity that maybe isn't legal. And I'm concerned about that. Um, so I'm wondering why you would be doing this on things that aren't substantiated versus the ones that are substantiated to look at those trends. To the chair, um, so what we're reporting on is a potential violation just because when we get a report of a potential violation, it might take us, just depending on the specifics of the violation, we would not have the data on the results of that particular investigation by the time this report, by the time we're presenting the annual report. We've all watched Law & Order, uh, at least I think most of us have, you know, um, and life is not an episode of Law & Order. It, it's Crimes don't get solved super quick and easy. If you've ever been through the legal process, it takes months to years to, you know, potentially a decade for any crime to go from an accusation, uh, or in this case, a written statement by someone to a conviction. And there's a lot that can go wrong. In between now and then, they can be charged with a more severe crime, or they can be charged with something more severe, or it can be lumped together, or, you know, those charges can be dropped. If they do this, this, and this, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. And the fact she keeps using the word unsubstantiated and gets really fixated on, well, they weren't convicted, so they must be innocent. It's frankly, uh, Dumb, 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 dumb. Uh, it, there's, there's no way, no other nice way to say it, nice way to put it. It's, 
it's dumb. Just because someone's not convicted of a crime doesn't mean they did the crime, didn't do the crime. O.J. Simpson was not convicted of murdering his wife. I don't know whether or not he did it, but that doesn't mean he didn't do it just because he wasn't convicted of doing it. So, yeah, that she gets really fixated on this, like it's making the fishery look bad. Um, no, it. They already have a reputation. People aren't looking at these numbers and saying, well, oh my goodness, they actually are all criminals. Uh, that's just an assumption that's made, you know, by fishermen or about fishermen, not by fishermen. So, you know, it it, it is what it is. And this is just a, a really dumb question. And I'm sure there's more to follow. Go ahead, Heather. Uh, thanks uh, through the chair. Thanks for that. So do you go back and correct it in future years when you provide additional reports? Do you ever go back and say, of those that were recorded, we can now report that 50% of them were substantiated or something like that? So the chair, when we do our OLE-specific report in December, that's going to have more of the updated numbers just because it's been a longer period of time, so we'll be, we'll be able to have more accurate case resolutions. This is a, a weird question, clarification to be made. If you read farther in the report, they do report what turned into what level of conviction went to further processing, went higher up in the courts, what got solved, what what ended up from all the statements made pre in years previous. So uh, Heather should know this as it's something that is brought up, has been brought up every year. Um, yeah line IFQ vessels. We do understand that sometimes boats do have to bring on undersized halibut because at the time when it's coming on, they might not know whether or not it's a size that it can be can be retained. So that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at more of instances where the halibut's being stripped from the hook, someone's not cutting the gang in, they're not straightening the hook to properly release the halibut, or it's making some sort of contact with the side of the vessel. We also had 64 occurrences of halibut being mishandled during deck sorting, and then 65 occurrences of halibut being mishandled in the factory aboard um, the non-pelagic trawl vessels. And then with those 65 occurrences, this would be down in the factory where more than likely the halibut is piling up maybe on a discard belt. Uh, maybe the halibut's not being, it's too large to fit out through the chute. Maybe it's being left on the floor, so it's not being immediately discarded as per the regulation requires. Thought I saw a question. And then when we looked at... I can ask you a question if you're feeling like you're left out there. <laughs> So I'm just curious about mishandling and how that's labeled and has it changed over the years where maybe we were not aware that, you know, picking a halibut up a certain way versus how we used to do it is now wrong. Did, did that criteria change or, or is it, has it been the same over time here? To the chair, um, as far as I know, I've been here for 15 years ish now, um, the criteria has always been the same for the, the handling of halibut. Um, on deck sorting, a lot of times what we get told is people are holding the halibut by the tail, the larger halibut by the tail, and sometimes people have noted that they can hear the back breaking or they know it's being broken. Um, if you talk to, or when we talk to the fishermen, we ask them, hey, how do you properly release a halibut? It's clear that they understand they should create a larger ones, not hold it by the tail, even though it seems like a handy handle. Susie. Following up on Patty's question uh, through the chair, so uh, having worked with some of the deck sorting uh, EFP work teaching crew, is there any kind of program or way to know that the vessels are training their crew properly so that there are not more of these reports of mishandling halibut, or is that just an assumption that they're going to continue to train their crew? And are the vessels getting told about these occurrences of mishandling? Through the chair, another great question. Um, this is something that we talk to different industry members about when we do some of the routine meetings that we do throughout the year. It's a voluntary um, meeting that we do. We let, it, we let them know, hey, prohibited handling issues are up higher, so they're notified, and they tell us, hey, we're going to talk to our crew. I have been present for some of these meetings, and they are letting them know, hey, these are the type of issues that OLE are looking at. I don't know if they're really focusing on these issues just because I'm standing there. It might be one of those instances. But I have had observers also tell me, oh, yeah, they have crew meetings, and they talk about observer harassment. They talk about species mishandling. They talk about safety and things like that when they're out there. really like how Jackie answered that question from Patty. Uh, the way people handle halibut is really frustrating. It's really bad for the fish. It kills fish unnecessarily. It's been this way for a long time, that you're not supposed to pick a halibut, halibut up by the tail. Unless you plan on keeping it, eating it, you pick it up by the tail, and you're killing it. Kind of think of it like someone picked you up by your head, you know? grabbed you around your neck, some giant creature, and picked you up that way. Yeah, you know, it may not kill you, but uh, odds are it's not going to feel good, and it might end up killing you. It's the same kind of idea. Halibut are meant to be, are, are propelled, movement, you know, they have their jaw, 
which does all their force and that that's where their their main vertebrae like that's the way their muscles work they're, they're not meant to be picked up and dragged by the tail they're not like people where our vertebrae and all our muscles make it so that when we stand up that's like a natural resting position for us and we can take a lot of trauma to our legs and be picked up by our legs and kids typically love it if you pick them up by the legs and swing around they have a lot of fun but if you did the same thing by the head somebody's calling cps um so it yeah it, it's it's pretty simple and i've my experience on catcher vessels is that I tell the crew, hey, you can't pick them up by the tail. You got to uh, you got to cradle them, pick them up, put your hand underneath them, toss them off the boat that way, or push them and slide them off the boat that way. That's fine. Don't pick them up by the tail. Then I'll tell them one more time, and then after that, it gets written up. Like It's not the observer's job to babysit these boats. These fishermen know the rules, and if there's a greenhorn on the deck and they don't know the rules. The experienced crew members on the boat know the rules. I've only been on one boat one time that had two greenhorns on it and no experienced members on the deck. And it, it's not something that happens frequently. They know the rules. They choose not to follow them and hope they don't get in trouble because it's a little bit quicker, a little bit easier to pick the halibut up by the tail and toss them out. So, it, it yeah, it's simple. Don't do it. Don't pick up halibut by the tail. It's bad for them. And then for prey species mishandling, we did have an increase from 2021 to 2022% by 40%. This is an overview of some of the cases that we were able to substantiate in 2022. So there were several instances where we ended up providing compliance assistance. We provide compliance assistance if we have information to suggest that maybe they were made aware of the incident, they took precautions to make sure it doesn't happen again. This is often um, in relation to a boat that self-reports an issue and they lay out very um, thoroughly, okay, this is the issue that happened, this is what we're gonna do in the future to ensure it does not happen again. Um, and then also we look back at the vessel's history to make sure that they don't have priors related to that same violation type. For written warnings, we were able to um, end up writing 21 individual written warnings. There were seven cases and it involved 21 different statements. For summary settlements, these are monetary penalties, kind of like if you were to get pulled over and get a ticket, you would get some sort of a monetary penalty. That's what a summary settlement is. We had 17 written and it included 29 individual statements. And then two cases were forwarded for prosecution. Um, and these ones are gonna be our more egregious ones, often involving some sort of sexual harassment or unwanted behavior towards an observer. There you go, observers. Evidence, proof, facts, that uh, your statements do actually go somewhere, do turn into something. Don't listen to anybody tell you that they don't go anywhere. OLE does read them, pay attention. Yours alone might not mean something or might not be enough to get something done, but uh, a history of observers reporting for the same issue or evidence being able to come up. There are reports of fishermen reporting fishermen um, for egregious violations, and it's, it's something that shows what you do matters up there and shows that something does come out of this. So keep positive and remember OLE is kind of doing their best. There, there's only so much they can do, but they'll try to get it done. Heather. Uh, thanks, Mr. Chairman. Doctor, can you tell me um, if any of those were observer on observer? Because you reported that that was increasing and so I'm just trying to ferret that part out. Yes, to the chair. As far as I know, none of these were, none of the cases that we forwarded free prosecution is observer on observer. Those ones are still ongoing. Howdy. Uh, thank you. Uh, the summary settlements, uh, is that uh, primarily, you, you said it's like getting pulled over by a cop car or whatever, but the way I understand summary settlements, because we deal with them in the Gulf, is MRA overages and or Pollock overages. Is, is this what the, the uh, 17 cases are here or is it something different? So the chair, these are going to be something different. The MRA overages aren't reported through observers. The ones that we have listed here are going to be through observer-initiated cases. That's a good clarification asked for by Patty. Uh, it, it's not an observer's responsibility to know how much fish the boat catches. They, uh, they're just there for the offload or that, so they don't report when your boat catches over 300,000 pounds in the Gulf. And as far as, you know, Heather's question, she's really focused on observer-on-observer -observer harassment. Kind of seems like she's using it as a scapegoat to excuse 
bad behavior by fishing vessels, fishermen. Um, she's a trawl representative, and I know she gets her fair share of flack on the Facebook from the anti-trawl pages and that, but it's kind of weird to try to focus on observer, on observer harassment. I know she does not care about observer on observer harassment except for as an excuse to say, well, if observers are doing it, then fishermen should be able to do it. Um, or maybe the fishermen aren't as bad as observers. And look, we don't need observers because they're just really mean to each other. Um, there's a lot of different avenues that could be potentially being taken here. And I don't think she's coming from uh, an angle of caring and trying to fix the situation. I think she's just trying to find a, a scapegoat. Something else that I wanted to highlight, and I hope this type of um, these outreach meetings that we have continues in the future. We have outreach letters that we'd like to send out to industry, just reminding them of what the regulatory requirements are. And we also have voluntary meetings with industry. A lot of times, um, someone will reach out to me and ask if we can have a meeting. Um, Alex Perry, you guys are probably familiar with him also. He and I both do these meetings with industry once or twice in a given year. We also had put together this voluntary online training called Ensuring a Safe Work Environment for Observers. Several different companies reached out to me because they wanted to have that training done. So overall, in 2022, we ended up having 22 meetings. And these discussions during these meetings are going to be sometimes very broad where we talk about issues that we see generally in that specific fleet, and then we like to narrow that focus and then focus on that company's particular vessels and the issues we see on the individual vessels. Awesome, great, fantastic. This is the kind of stuff you wanna see. You wanna see people being proactive, try and prevent issues before they arise, get ahead of these things. And that's just, that's super cool that OLE does this and that there are companies and vessels out there willing to help get ahead of the issues and prevent them from happening in the first place. That's just that's super cool. Thanks, just a comment. Um, I think the meetings and the outreach that you and your team does is great. And I appreciate how you'll go up to Dutch and come to Seattle. I just think that's an important thing. And I'm glad to see that that's continuing. So thanks. Thank you very much. Uh, for the shore plant observer incidences that you mentioned where it's observer on observer, does that do are the observer providers then the employers of those observers involved when there is a statement made or does that still go to the plant operator to the chair if it is involving an observer on observer issue the observers are doing a great job letting their in-season advisors know so then the, the observer providers are being looped in to hopefully try to mitigate it before it escalates to something else the way the regulations are written even if it is an observer on observer harassment case OLE still has the jurisdiction to investigate that so we're hoping it can be resolved before it reaches our level quick follow-up and if, if it did result in a violation, who is the violation to? Who is it the plant that's housing the observers? Is it the observer provider that's the employer? So the chair, when we're dealing with interpersonal type issues, it's the person who did the behavior. So it would be the observer who would be the one that would be pursued. All right. This kind of seems like a weird jump. This question is from the council meeting, not the advisory panel meeting on the same presentation, same subject given by the same person. Uh, this is uh, a question from a fisheries rep on the North Pacific Council, and they, once again, get really focused on the observer on observer harassment. Um, they, observers harassing observers is bad. It's, it's not something that should be acceptable. It shouldn't be something that happens. People conflict, and that's... You know, that, that's going to be inevitable. It's going to happen. But when it gets to the point of harassment, that's when it reaches an unacceptable point. It's something that needs to be solved by the providers and something that needs to be solved by nymphs and individual observers. It's not really something that the fishery should be too concerned about uh, as it's something that doesn't impact them in any meaningful way besides the availability of observers. Chairman, so the way that I asked the question that kind of explained away the 33% for the catcher processor incident in the Gulf, this 243%, there is no way to explain that away by a small number of people or a lack of participants. This is a real number that we should all be looking at as indicative of a problem. Or is there some context which that number might be inflated in some way? Uh, through the chair, Mr. Messer, uh, this is a more alarming number. I agree. It is not a small population that we're dealing with. So it's not a like an inflated rate because you have a small population looking at. Um, it, it, so the number of, we look at, we're looking at the number of occurrences per assignment and with hostile work environment, it actually has to be pervasive in order to reach a level of hostile work environment. So you're expecting to, one second, that sounds terrible, but you would expect to see a lot of occurrences in order to get it to the point where this environment that I'm working in is hostile. So remember where we were looking at sexual harassment, it was even one situation 
is driving your rates, where in this case, it's multiple occurrences are being reported in a single statement. And that's why you have in the first bullet, you have over 1% per occurrence because you might be at one processor in the Gulf and have a hostile working situation come up over and over and over again. And I was there for 90 days. So that would now be 90 occurrences. So, so there is some explanation behind that, but it, isn't, it is certainly not something that we would want to discount because the increase from year over year is what is concerning. I kind of have a follow-up. And, and so is also part of this problem, the fact that um, these observers are housed in group housing offsite? Is this part of the consideration or is this only what happens in the plant itself when they're working? So we, we assessed that when we were looking through the different statements and as we began the investigations, um, there's definitely a link between observer experience levels where you have observers who might be more experienced and ones who are brand new, which may lead to conflict. Um, gender also plays a role. And then also that environment where they are always around one another, they might be deployed 90 days together, they can't get away from each other where they are sharing a room for 90 days at a time. Thank you. Mr. Twight. So this question, he brings up the number, the percentage of increase of observer on observer harassment. There's a lot of ways you can look at and dissect this number. Um, I think from my personal experience, most newer observers seem to feel more harassed when they're told they're doing something wrong or doing something incorrectly or they need to be doing it this particular way. And uh, the more experienced an observer gets, the, the better they are at dealing with situations like that. Uh, it's not always the case. There are always exceptions. That's just the general feel that I've had um, from observers. Then there is the fact that, you know, it, when you get stuck with someone like this and you get stuck with someone who sucks, it sucks. It sucks really hard. And they've added new systems into the observer software and increased internet availability makes it easier to report these issues not saying that that's a problem but i'm saying that's going to be a reason for an increase is when you increase the availability of being able to report these issues so th there's a lot that goes into that number i'm not trying to excuse any of it away observers should not harass observers it's pretty simple don't be a jerk and you can uh, make it pretty far with your fellow coworkers, even if they are dumb or they're doing things incorrectly or they're refusing to change there's a lot of aspects a lot of resources to go to to get these situations resolved that don't create a hostile work environment thanks um i'm wondering if this abrupt and, and really unprecedented rise is, is partly one of the delayed costs uh, or results of the large amount of stress that we put on observers through covid not to excuse it at all um it's inexcusable but I'm just, is, is this another symptom of a kind of a overstressed, fatigued observer workforce? To the chair, I think that's a very fair statement to make. Um, I did notice just out in the field and working with the different observers and interacting with people, people did not have the same communication skills that they might've had pre-COVID. And then now that we're moving out of COVID, they're starting to learn how to communicate with one another. But we had observers who were training and debriefing only remotely. There was not that same level of human interaction and maybe they weren't able to just pay as much attention to one-on-one -on -one interactions and talking to somebody as they would have when it was not remote. Thanks. And and I in, in your answer, I was also hearing some thoughts about um, how OLE, at least and probably also the, the program would be considering for the next year for addressing that and hopefully bringing it back down again. And I really appreciate that as well. Mr. Down. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, uh, thank you for, for your presentation. I always find your, your uh, presentations helpful. I really appreciate that very much. I think, but I think my question is probably more for Ms. Ferdinand. Um, that I'm just wondering, to avoid some of the confusion that's, that's led to some of the questions about whether these are inflated rates or not inflated rates, are they small subsets or are we talking about large numbers? Um, would, it be, would it be possible, in, in, I mean, is it difficult, difficult in the future to, because I found when I was looking at the document and I also had members of the public come up to me and say, hey, what, what does this really mean? Is, I, th I think they could, there's a possibility you could um, include in future iterations of these observer reports the actual numbers so that people could see whether they're, these are inflated numbers, whether they're large, whether this should be a big concern, or is this just something that went from one complaint to three complaints and it might not be as big of a concern? I think it might be helpful. I just wanted to know if there was any problems with uh, considering that. Uh, through the chair, thanks for that question, Mr. Down. We actually did used to present just numbers, and you know, the, the concern that the council raised and that the public raised is well, it's just a number, but we don't. We still don't have context. It is really hard to provide context behind uh, behind all of these factors, and um, 
you know, my response to, to Mr. Mesro's question was not to minimize per se, but to, to add that context. So it's, it's always a bit tricky to add context without appearing like we're minimizing, particularly when it comes to interpersonal, because one interpersonal issue, especially when it comes to a sexual harassment or sexual assault case is too many. And so we don't want to kind of push that into the weeds through too much uh, explaining away. Um, but we can, we can look at, we, we can try to look at, at providing a little bit more context, uh, particularly when we look at year over year changes, uh, because if we change assignment types or we are changing the way we're deploying observers, for example, we have a lot more observers working together now than we have in the past years. Um, if we, we can certainly try to add some context in future annual reports. Jin gives a pretty good answer here. It's hard to provide context, you know, it, it, if, one out of three cars in your driveway, you get in and someone punches you in the face. That that's, seems really bad, but, you know, if we take that same number and say, well, you know, there's only a 0.01% chance of someone getting punched in the face entering their car in the neighborhood, then that seems pretty good. Um, so high, but, you know, pretty good. Only one person's being punched in the face for everybody going out and getting in their cars. Yeah, I really like the punch in the face analogy um but it you can break down these numbers and make them very mini school make them very specific show exactly what's happening here and you run into issues there where people say well it, you know it wasn't us that did it it was that other boat fishing for that other fish that did it so we don't really have to worry about that and that it's not really true it's not that's not really how you should hold it fishermen should hold fishermen accountable for fishermen's actions, just like observers should hold observers accountable for observers' actions. And we should all hold each other accountable for each other's actions, because if you, we want to make the world better, we need to make everyone progress just a little bit, you know, little bits here and there. And when you get into statistics and numbers like this, there's a lot of statistical regressions and analyzing and different data charts and plots and ways to present numbers to try to make them more understandable but in the end it either you're going to look at these numbers and be like wow that's really high um but you know a 243 percent increase isn't isn't that bad if you're going from 10 to 24 versus you know 100 to 240 so here though there you, it, it's hard to break down these numbers include everything and like jen said also not just try to explain away what is actually going on thank you mr chair um i guess mr twight's comment about um increased stress with what we put on observers during covid and that kind of thing i, I think it was in the fmac report um talked about looking at a longer time frame and thinking about what these rates look like compared to pre-COVID rates. And I think those kinds of things may help with some of the context. And I, I guess the question is, is it possible to look at doing those um, kind of context looks going forward might help with some of our questions. Uh, through the chair, thank you, Ms. Vanderhoven. I, I think it is probably possible. We have some other, within the FMA division, we've had some other work done um, and we'll be releasing some peer-reviewed journal articles on sexual harassment, sexual assault, interpersonal issues. You know, I, I know that when you give a one-year look, sometimes it can be, um, Quite alarming. Please remember too that other industries are not required to give out this information. It's very unusual that we give this information out on this very specific population of, of employee. Um, but you know, we we do have there is probably there is some good news. Like we did not see huge market ticks up in our uh, harassment cases, for example, through the Me Too movement. And what that showed us is that we probably had pretty good reporting even before that happened. So I think we can provide some of that context, and and we do have now a growing body of work to reference. So appreciate that. Please continue. Well. You know, COVID, if you're listening to this, you probably lived through COVID. Most of us did, um, but it changed the way a lot of things are done. And in the observer world, things were already changing um, through the EM system, EM program before COVID times happened. So comparing numbers of observer on observer harassment rates prior and post COVID is going to be difficult. And I feel like some numbers are going to have to be crunched to account for more observers working more closely together. Uh, since COVID happened, there's a lot less Pollock observers, CV observers, and a lot more observers working closely together in areas that weren't designed to fit as many people as were work are working there now. If you go from an office space, which was designed to have one 
observer in it and you go to putting two observers in it that's you know half the space if you go from a space that was meant to have two observers to four observers that's half the space again so you know there's a lot to consider when looking at these numbers and a straight comparison i don't feel is accurate or give you a proper portrayal of what is going on out there mr misra thank you mr chairman just um some clarity on the top bullet decimal three three is saying 33 percent per assignment on non-flagic trawl catcher process can you give us some context like how many assignments there are or how many vessels that is it's just a big number at 33 percent if we don't have context to better understand how many vessels or assignments there are that would get you to 33 percent this is a very good question i'm hoping jen might have off the top of her head how many vessels are included in that sector uh through the chair mr Mosra, there's one catcher processor that operates exclusively in the gulf of alaska there may have been one or two more that moved into the area but i don't know how many assignments in 2022 i have to get that back. i have to get that for you Back to the car analogy. Yes, you know, maybe there's one or three vessels that uh, that had this issue out of a catch processor fleet of, I don't know, let's just say 50, 50 vessels, catch processors that do kind of the same fishery and you have a chance to be put on. So out of 50, you know, one to three of those will leave you with a one in third chance to, uh, to, have a serious issue and that's like looking at your neighborhood one person jumps into a car randomly throughout your whole neighborhood and there's a one in three chance that that person just punches you right in the face as soon as you open your car door uh, it, it's not a statistically high number it may not seem super scary odds are it won't ever happen to you uh, not not if you don't get in cars very often but, you know, there is a chance, and that chance is, you know, one in three out of however many vessels. So just something to think about. It, it's not a specifically high number, but it is a high percentage. So don't don't let solid numbers fool you. Getting, getting harassed is not, not good. Thank you. This might be the slide that you were referencing earlier, Ms. Smith. And so I'm, I'm, this is where I think it's helpful for the council. And I wonder if you could provide kind of the denominator here. Like what were the total number of statements that then resulted in written warnings or violations? Um, is that something that can be provided in the future? Or is that too difficult to parse out across years since you mentioned these, aren't, these don't all stay in the same calendar year? Through the chair, it is something that we can look to see what's the best method to get that information to you. I know we do have one figure that does kind of show a funnel of how many statements were provided or through the observer program and then how many resulted in cases and then funneled down to how many resolutions there are. Um, but again, there are cases that sometimes take months or years, so it wouldn't necessarily be ready for, let's say, at a June council meeting for the previous year. So there's going to be a slight delay in those case resolutions. Thank you for that response. I think that might be really helpful to at least think a little bit more about since if we're trying to parse through and identify trends or where we should focus our attention, it would really help to know here are this number of statements. Here's what resulted in violations and kind of on what fleets or what areas of the fisheries those were, um, as opposed to us focusing on every single statement that then might result in, in nothing. Um, just ideas, but thank you. All right, here's an example again of someone getting stuck on well, it was just a statement. That doesn't mean they actually did something wrong uh, because they weren't charged with anything. And it, that's not how the legal system or any of this works. Um, you can report a crime. That doesn't mean the crime didn't happen if it doesn't get convicted. Uh, it means, you know, there's there's a lot of due process that needs to go there. And trying to prevent these things from happening in the first place is the way to do it. Acting retroactively is not super helpful. So looking at the statements and saying, okay, we've got a broad number of complaints here. How can we lessen these number of complaints, which therefore, you know, will lessen the number of uh, convictions and tickets and everything else that ends up going on down the line. But, you know, that's kind of just what I think. If you think differently, let me know. Let, let me know where my logic is incorrect and maybe i'll change my opinion but this is how i see it i see it as them seeing it incorrectly and i'm stating why so if i'm seeing something incorrectly let me know well 
there's a lot more left to this. Uh, there's a couple more comments left, a lot of things uh, I want to talk about, but I don't have time for that. We're coming up on a holiday. Yay, holidays! And I've been pretty busy. I'm going to be traveling up to Alaska here pretty shortly to go visit a friend and go fishing and chillax and have a little bit of vacation time. Haven't taken off much vacation time from work. Been working a lot and doing a lot of chores around the house. So this is all the time I've got for this episode. I hope you all have a very safe 4th of July and enjoy yourselves. Here's some tips to having a safe 4th. Every firework that you light is still lit until it is finished exploding. Okay, don't stick your head over any fireworks. It's never a good idea. Some fuses burn faster than others. Remember, you light something, stay a safe distance away. Keep all fireworks that you don't plan on having ignite immediately away from any possible fire source, including exploding fireworks. So, you know, if you're lighting off a mortar and it happens to explode on the ground, uh, make sure your other fireworks are far enough away or in a safe location that if something goes wrong with that first firework, that it doesn't have a chance of igniting all your other fireworks and making a hodgepodge of a burning infernal hellscape on, on your dirt. Follow the laws and rules and safety regulations. Uh, Face shields are always a good idea. Gloves, you know, prevent burns. Sparklers are incredibly dangerous. Don't throw smoke bombs into dry tender or into the Multnomah County Gorge. Um, if you see a fire, you know, call the fire department. But other than that, people lighting off fireworks is not a reason to call the fire department. Fires are reasons to call the fire department. Maiming, human injury, things like that. Those are reasons to call the fire department or an ambulance. No reason to call 911 on the neighbor's kids next door lighting off firecrackers. Uh, not until someone gets injured. It, it's the 4th of July. People are out there to have fun. Uh, some other fun anecdotes that I think I'll end this episode with. I and my father and my wife went out hiking in the woods and we saw some, a company hired by the Fort, National Forest Service to tear up a nice paved road and turn it into a gravel road. That was kind of weird to me. And the guy doing it didn't seem to know why they were doing it, except for that it was just for the log trucks. But, you know, the, we'd driven down that paved road quite a few times, and it was a very nice paved road. And now it's going to be a shitty gravel road. So, um, it's, you know, we're getting into midsummer, so... Pollock fishing's in full swing. There's a lot of fisheries going on. Go support your local commercial fisheries. Buy some fish off the docks. Go out there and do some fishing yourself. Enjoy the summer. Enjoy this nice weather. Assuming you live somewhere with nice weather this time of year. If you're on the southern hemisphere, enjoy your winter season. And everybody just enjoy what you're doing and keep on keeping on. I'll see you in another episode. Thanks for listening. Bye.